when you're up against a hostile room of people who don't want to be there, you need real strategies that get results. Welcome to From Hostage to Hero, the show that gives you practical advice you can use right now in the courtroom, boardroom, or classroom. Learn how to move your unwilling audience to one that is invested in what you're saying, eager to participate, and engaged in the process. Learn from the attorney whisperer herself, your host, Sari Delamont. Hello, everybody. Sari Delamont with you. I'm so glad to be here. I hope you're glad to be here too. Welcome to another episode of From Hostage to Hero. We are heading into the fall. Can you believe it? Oh my goodness. I'll be coming back from my medical leave next week and I'll be so happy to be with my crew again and to see all of you um, both in the From Hostage to Hero Facebook group and here at the podcast. And boy, it's it's been a long way, long time to be away, but I'm gl- so glad to be coming back. All right. Well, today we are talking about how to empower jurors to fight for you in the verdict room. But before we do that, I want to do, as we always do, a listener or in this case, a reader shout out. And this one is by Jason F. He says, wonderful book. Learn the paradigm shifts that will take you to the next level. This is a must read read. Well, thank you, Jason, for your lovely review. And if you haven't reviewed the book yet or you don't have the book yet, go ahead and purchase it at trialguides.com and uh, review the book at this reading or this recording. We are at 88 reviews and uh, we're trying to head for toward 100. So hopefully that's happened by the time this has dropped. And even if it has, we still would we welcome your review. So please do that um, and review the podcast too while you're at it. That would be so helpful to us. Okay, so let's talk about this this concept of helping the jurors fight for you in the verdict room. So if we go back to the from hostage to hero method, we start by recognizing that jurors are hostages because they can't choose to not be there. They can, but they have they have consequences to that choice. So they are hostages when they first arrive. And so your job is to walk them through a process that gets you more permission as you go because the, you need more permission as their choices get harder and harder. So what do I mean by permission? Well, permission, the way we define it around here, is how receptive someone is to you or your message. When you start trial, the jurors are not receptive to you at all, (laughs) right? So you have very little permission. So therefore, we can't ask them to do anything difficult. So the first choice in the uh, introduce safety phase, which is phase number one, is to offer the jurors the choice to be present, okay? Just, Just be here now. Most of them are just wanting to just jump up from their seat and run, but you want to get them at least a little bit of a permission to get them to stay. And we do that by offering them safety. And there's a variety of ways we do that. And I talk about that in the book and in other podcast episodes. When we go to the second phase, which is the invite engagement phase, now we have hopefully gained a little bit more permission by introducing that safety, making them feel safe, telling what the rules are, uh, being the guide. Now our rule, our role changes to facilitator as we invite that engagement. We facilitate a conversation between jurors and the concepts and us and each other. And what we're offering them, the choice, is to engage 
hey, would you talk to me? So the first choice is, will you just stay and listen? The second choice is, will you talk to me? Notice how the choices get a little harder with each growing step. Now, when we go into the inspire commitment phase, this is now an opening, we give jurors the third choice, which is to commit to us. Hopefully, because of a good voir dire that we've done, they're ready to commit to us once they hear the details. But notice how that takes even more permission from us. They need to now trust and believe in us and our version of events. And we do that through great opening statement and, of course, sourcing that opening from the jurors in voir dire. That's that trial dialogue I continue to talk about. The fourth and final step is to incite action. And now our role changes from teacher. So we started with guide, then facilitator, then teacher, now into full-blown leader. And the choice that we offer jurors at this stage is the ultimate choice, which is to take action for us and our client. Now, the jurors need different things at different phases, right? So they need safety at the beginning. They, they need us to help them engage with the process and, 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 um, and, and continue to feel that safety in the engagement phase. They need details when we get to opening. Here what they need in the, this final closing phase is they need empowerment and encouragement. And so that's what I want to talk about today is how do we get the jurors to fight for us when we're not there? This is why I always talk about how voir dire is a group activity because the most important thing that they do is outside of your purview, meaning you're not going to be there when they are in the verdict room. So what you're doing throughout trial, starting in Wadir, even before Wadir, when you're designing that alliance, is giving them the gift of each other by forming the group and having them work as a group so that they know how to do this once they go back into the verdict room. You're giving them the gift of each other and the tools that they need to do their job because you won't be there when they do it. Their most important piece of what the jurors are doing is outside of anything that you see. So it's really important that you walk them through this. Now, if you have a copy of the book, you'll you recognize that I go into major depth on how to create an issue-oriented voir dire and the ideal juror profile. I go into major depth of explaining every piece of the nine-piece template that I teach. But in the closing section, I don't have a template and I don't go into major detail. Why is that? Well, because closing is the most creative part of trial. It's also something that needs to be always on the back burner as trial is progressing. You're taking notes of things you want to put together in the closing. It has to kind of come together as trial is happening. Because trial is a living, breathing thing, as you've heard me say. And closing needs to reflect what happened. It's not something we can create necessarily, at least fully, ahead of time. So that's the reason why I don't have a template for you to follow. But what I do say in the book is that, as I've said throughout trial, the only three things that we're doing in trial or otherwise are teaching, storytelling, or dealing with resistance. So when you're thinking about that, I want you to think about how this is so true. So if, uh, for example, we're in voir dire, what's the teaching that we're doing in voir dire? Well, we, we give those context statements. This case involves a car crash. In this case, someone was injured. Very simple, but that's a little bit of teaching. It's giving the jurors information. 
An opening, where do we teach? Well, that's the educate the jury section that we just talked about in the last podcast episode. We also teach in the cause and effect section in the opening template where we talk about how the defendant's conduct actually created or caused the injury. During trial, our experts teach the jury about specific medical things or if we've got um, reenactments or things like that. That's That's the teaching that happens during trial. Where do we teach in closing during this phase that we're talking about in today's um, episode? The jury instructions. We need the uh, the attorney to walk the jurors through the jury instructions. And so I talk about that in the book in terms of the teaching section, is that there's really three steps to help make sense of the jury instructions. One is you need to get, go over each key question the jury must answer separately. So many attorneys will blow that up, the question, and, and so they can discuss each individual and each individually. Second, you need to take out the legal words and redefine them in simple juror language. That's super important. And three, which is probably the most important part of this, is you need to tell the jurors how to answer the question. You know, so often attorneys will go over the instructions and they'll say, okay, if you believe this, mark this box. And if you think that, mark this box. No, 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 no. This is your time to advocate. You should not be neutral here. You've got to take a stand. So for each question, you're going to illustrate why jurors should mark the box by reminding them what the defendant did and why that meets the definition of negligence or whatever else it is you're explaining and physically mark that X on your visual. You're no longer a facilitator here. That's what I want you to think about. Or even teacher, even though you are teaching here, you are leader during this phase this insight action phase, and leaders take a stand. They have a position. So the jury needs to see you do this. This is not a time for you to be neutral. You've got to say, look, we did prove this over trial. So mark this. This is where your leadership comes in. This is what they need. They need this empowerment. Now, when we think about the um, storytelling, where are you telling the stories? Well, in Wadir, we're hearing whose stories? The jurors' stories, yeah. And in opening, we tell the, both the defendant's story, you know, why we're here and how we got here, and then the plaintiff's story, you know, what, what what's the plaintiff been left with. During trial, the stories we tell are from, or we hear are from lay witnesses. And in closing, we tell what I call the juror's story or the future story. The, the defendant's story is the story of the past. That's why we're here today. The plaintiff's story is the story of the present, how the, how the plaintiff is today. And the juror's story is the story of the future. What will happen if the jury takes uh, responsibility or, or holds these people responsible, I should say? And more importantly, what will happen if they don't? So that's really important as well. So when you're teaching the jury to advocate for you, a huge part of this is telling them these two future stories because it really shows that... It illustrates for them, this is the consequence of the two choices that you have. So in the book, I talk about this in that 
you know, you can project 20, 30, or even 50 years in the future and tell a story of the plaintiff receiving compensation that makes all the difference. And what is the plaintiff able to do? How are they helped? So on and so forth. And then, in, or, you know, in the case of a death, how does the money allow the survivors to heal? But then you tell a different story and you tell about a jury that decided against taking action and a plaintiff that received no help and how the company was let off the hook. So you're clearly illustrating to jurors, here are the action, the action that you take back there in the verdict room are, is going to result in one of these two options. So that they clearly understand the magnitude of what is happening. Now, when we think about the third thing that we do at trial, which is uh, deal with resistance, we also do that in every phase. So in Wadir, we have discussions around money and principles and lawyer hate and, and all those kinds of things. We're dealing with or looking for the jurors that are resistant to those ideas or allowing money for those things. In opening, we deal with resistance in the challenges section. So we talk about in that section how we're going to take the defense points and we're going to say things like, now before we came to trial, we had to look at a few things. For example, you know, the woman was 90 years old. You know, she was going to die anyway. Isn't it possible that X, Y, Z? You know, something that the defense may say or most likely hint at. That's how we deal with it there. During trial, we deal with resistance on cross-exam, of course. And here in closing, and this is the part that I really want to outline today, we're going to teach the jury how to fight for us. Now, this is the most important part, I think, of your closing, is to teach them how to deal with resistance in the back room when you're not there. Now, what's, what's wonderful about this is that you can go back to that challenges section and use that to help you here. And I want to give you an example of what it is that you're doing here. You know, I talk in the book about my favorite marketing guru, which is Michael Katz. He's wonderful. And in his classes, he talks about how to talk about how to talk about your business. So in business, talking about what you do in a simple and memorable way isn't just a way to avoid looking like a dork at networking events. It's how you literally get business. So you have to have a succinct and memorable what you probably have heard of as an elevator speech. And so your elevator speech works in two ways. It should help you talk intelligently about your business when out and about. But more importantly, it should help others talk about you and your business. Meaning most business people do not understand that the majority of the people that you meet day in and day out aren't your clients. But that if you can clearly communicate what you do to those people when they are out and about and bump into people who do need your services, they'll be able to talk about you intelligently. In other words, you're not delivering your elevator speech to people so that they will buy, but so that they can give that speech to someone else. This is what you're doing in closing. This is what you're doing in closing. So here's how you do it. So you go back to your challenges section, that part of the opening statement template, where you should have asked rhetorical questions and then answered them, usually by quoting an expert the jury would hear from during trial. So for example, if you go back to the book and you read the, the part about the anesthesiology case where we had the anesthesiologist that was molesting patients, gross, um, we said something in the challenges section like this. 
Did the hospital really have a duty to call the police when they got reports that their anesthesiologist had molested patients? I mean, what if the reports weren't credible? Wouldn't that be unfair to the anesthesiologist? So this was something that the, the, the defense was hinting at, right? We didn't need to call the police. We wanted to check it out ourselves first, do an internal investigation, blah, blah, blah. So we ask the question, right? And that's one thing you want, definitely want to do in the challenges section is you want to ask a question and then you answer it. So here's how we answered it. Here's what we found. Hospitals are required by law to report any suspected criminal activity to the police. You'll hear from expert XYZ who will tell you that it's better be, to be safe than sorry when dealing with patient safety. All right. So let's assume that that's what you did in your challenges section in your opening statement. And I'm happy to do a podcast episode on how to create a great challenges section. Now, in closing, you're going to repeat the question, but in this way. This is what I think is so brilliant, if I may say so myself. If anyone back in the verdict room says, quote, it's unreasonable to expect the hospital call the police when they aren't sure if he did it, you remind them that the hospital has a duty to report any suspected criminal activity. And furthermore, when it comes to patient safety, it's better to be safe than sorry. So notice a few things. One, you've shown jurors how to argue a point in your favor. But two, by using a well-known phrase like better safe than sorry, you've made your point memorable because you've said that twice. And if you go to the book on page 357, I have a lot of catchphrases and idioms that you can use for cases just like this. So how do you help jurors fight for you back in the verdict room? Well, in three ways, you teach them what the jury instructions mean in plain language, and you also advocate during that time because we're in closing now. This is not a time to summarize the evidence. This is a time to advocate and show the jury and prove to them that you did prove these things. So therefore, mark X on this box for these reasons. Then you tell the stories, the future stories of clearly communicating to jurors, here's how either when you vote this way, how things will end up, or if you vote this way, how things will end up. So they can clearly understand the impact of the choice they're about to make. But most importantly, you, you help them fight for you in the back room by showing them how to deal with the resistance from maybe the couple jurors that are not on your side all the way back from opening. And you go back to opening, which is a really nice full circle because the more we can repeat some of our themes, the better off we are. By taking those challenging questions and teaching the jury how to use them for you back in the verdict room. If you want more information on this and you don't have the book, you can get that at trialguides.com. I talk about this in the book, but hopefully this was helpful in helping you help the jury to fight for you back in the verdict room. All right, everybody, I will talk to you next week. Thanks for joining me today. If you benefited from what we talked about or just want to let me know you enjoy the podcast, go ahead and leave me a review on whichever platform you use to listen to From Hostage to Hero. Add a comment and I just might give you a shout out on an upcoming episode. In the meantime, head over to fromhostagetohero.com to order your copy of my book, From Hostage to Hero, captivate the jury by setting them free. And to get on my mailing list, I send out trial tips and encouragement right to your inbox every single week. And while you're there, make sure you join the waitlist to become an H2H crew member when we reopen. We only open a few times each year and you do not want to miss out. 
I look forward to our time together in next week's episode. Talk then. 